Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the seemingly eternal task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because of Rassilon's eternal, seemingly. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a probably not eternal at all five person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, and I was awoken from my slumber, just like Rassilon, to record this podcast, so... Oh, yes. God, does that mean you're going to put somebody in a bas-relief and have their eyes goggling all over the place like ping-pong balls? I might I might be benevolent today and not have to do that, so... Oh, good. Thank <laughs> goodness. There's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. We also welcome back two special guests, the former host of the Talking Who to You podcast and current host of the Talking Trek to You podcast, G.G. McQuarrie. Hello, G.G. Hello. And the star of Page and Screen, Jim Sangster. Hello, Jim. Goodness me, there are five of us now. There are five of us now. Oh. <laughs> yes. Ah, I see what you did there. Is one of us going to get stuck in the time vortex? That would be me. <laughs> 
In fact, I'll put reverb on that like I normally do when I say that would be me, and that'll make it even more time vortexy. So, if you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount that you give per month, you receive goodies, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in a crypt hidden from all living beings and booby-trapped with lightning bolts and the occasional Cyberman in blue jeans. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And if you've ever seen the, the actual televised story, you know what I'm talking about there. I'll have to explain it at some point. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton-Welling, Louise, Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. At this point, we almost have as many patrons as we have incarnations of the Doctor as they currently exist now, which is awfully nice. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We complete our discussion of Peter Davison's second season as the Doctor as we discuss the novelization of The Five Doctors. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Five Doctors, adapted by Terrence Sticks from a script that aired on 11-25-83, published by Target Books in November 1983. As of this recording in August 2023, this title is out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. So we are discussing the 20th anniversary special during the 60th anniversary year. God, we've gotten old. Mm. So... You will notice that despite this being the 20th anniversary story, the date for its transmission is two days after the actual anniversary date. This is, shall we say, an ongoing bone of contention between U.S. and U.K. fans, or at least it was at the time. The original plan was indeed for this special to go out on the 20th anniversary date, November 23rd, but the BBC decided to delay it by two days so that it would coincide with that year's Children in Need charity drive. The story did go out on its anniversary, though, in the U.S., which is how I first saw it. So American fans got this first, amazingly. The show had become very popular in the States by 1983, and so an arrangement between the BBC and the Public Broadcasting System, or PBS, was made to air it here at the same time as in the UK. But since PBS's schedule, ironically enough, is nothing but pledge drives, and those indeed did run during the story's original transmission here, which was just a pain in the ass, there was nothing keeping it from airing on time. Good thing we didn't have Twitter or Formula X or whatever the hell it's called now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> there is so much background on this story that I'm only going to cover a couple of specifics, namely the two things that affected the plotting of the story itself. John Nathan Turner, for once, followed the advice of his script editor, Eric Sayward and brought in a writer who knew Doctor Who inside and out, someone who hadn't contributed a script in many years, and that writer was, of course, Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes was uncomfortable with the idea of writing a script that used so many other people's characters and delved so deeply into the continuity, and this story would do both. He eventually agreed to do a script treatment called The Six Doctors, 
in which the various incarnations and companions of the Doctor would be kidnapped by the Cybermen to gain the ability to regenerate, which sounds silly. It's nothing that the show would ever do under any normal circumstances. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> it would also feature the Master. The reason for the title is that the first Doctor would turn out to be an android infiltrator, which would make him a sixth Doctor and also would account for his looking so different. They would have to do this because William Hartnell had died several years before, and so the first Doctor would be portrayed by actor Richard Herndahl. Again, silly sounding concept, except it had been done before in The Chase, and not so successfully. One fun fact about this, they had been considering Jeffrey Bailden, who had originally been considered as the first Doctor way back in 1963, and who had since been in the show as Organon in Creature from the Pit, and had gained fame in the children's series Cat Weasel, which I've never seen. <laughs> J&T finally rejected him on the grounds that he'd be too recognizable from that latter show. This after having cast Peter Davison, who is best known as Tristan Farnan at this point. <laughs> Stupid man. Holmes eventually ran into significant trouble with the script, and he suggested asking Terrence Dix to write it. Dix was rather pissed that he hadn't been asked from the start, and more pissed that Sayward telephoned him while he was at a Doctor Who convention in the States, and forgetting the time difference woke him up. He got over it eventually, though, as we already know. And here's the other bit that changed the story. Dix had originally given the fourth Doctor a much bigger role in the story on the grounds that Tom Baker had proven to be the most popular Doctor thus far. God only knows what Peter Davison thought about that. He also felt that if any Doctor was going to go bad, it would be the fourth Doctor, as he seemed to do in The Invasion of Time, and he wanted to fool the audience into thinking that the villain was the fourth Doctor. Thus, it would have been that Doctor who went back to the Capitol, calling the Capitol, calling the Capitol, and confronted Barusa. Happily for poor Peter Davison, that didn't end up happening, though unhappily for the rest of us, the reason why is that Tom Baker pulled out of the project three weeks after agreeing to participate. Baker felt it would be too painful for him to revisit the role after spending so much time in it. He agreed to have footage from the unaired story Shada used to stand in for him, and that was JNT's backup plan, so he must have had a feeling that this was going to happen. <laughs> For photo shoots promoting the story, they used Tom Baker's waxwork figure from Madame Tussauds. <laughs> and they went on to do it again in 1993 for his performance. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. It just seemed like it. Sadly, due to an admin mistake, it was the, uh, the Megloss version that they sent over instead. Oh, that's right. That's With right. The spines and everything. Spiny faced yeah. ones. Yes, luckily they fixed that before they went in front of the cameras. In terms of publication, this novel came out before the story aired. I spoke to David Tennant at C2E2 a few years back, and he said this was his favorite Target novel, and he remembered getting his copy before seeing it, just like I did back in 1983, which, as I've already said, is 40 years ago now. <clears throat> I remember uh, getting a first edition of The Five Doctors in McDougall's bookshop in Paisley um, before the show had even been on TV. 
that came out, like, I think by mistake a few days earlier. Also, it's not noticeable in PDF at all, but I don't remember the chapter titles in any of the other books ever being in italics before. I could be wrong about that. I know that our next book, Harry Sullivan's War, which we'll be recording in October, also does this, but I don't remember it appearing in any other Target book. I'm going to have to look back. So, I did a virtual coin toss before recording, and figured out which one of our two esteemed guests would be reading the back cover. And JG, you are the winner if you choose to do so. Thank you. I, it would be an honor and a privilege as always it is. Awesome. Oh, right. I should probably do that then, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. A 20th anniversary special featuring the Doctor in all five of his regenerations, technically. Why are all five Doctors being removed from their separate time screen? Who it will be the enemy they will have to unite against? What will become of the Doctors when the battle is over? We have travelled a long way with Doctor Who. The five Doctors gives us a chance to turn the clock back and meet some old friends. And some old enemies. Awesome. Yay. I've got the 1991 reissue in front of me, if you wanted that, because that is different. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's do both then. And what was the back cover for the 1991 reissue? The player put the little figure of the first Doctor onto the board, pushing it towards the centre with a long rake. The first piece was on the board. But this is not a game. One by one, the five Doctors are removed from their respective time streams and dumped in the death zone on Gallifrey. But who was manipulating them in this way? And why has the Master been sent to help them? And what exactly? is locked inside Rassilon's tomb. The Five Doctors was originally broadcast on 25th of November 1983 <coughs> in the UK to mark the 20th anniversary of the series. It was written by Terence Dix, who was script editor of the series for five years, and who has written more than 60 novelizations of Doctor Who television stories. Both of them very heavy on rhetorical questions, I notice. Mm -hmm. Or rather, questions that the story will answer if you should happen to open the cover of the book. I love my one. This is not a game. Um, it is, you know. <laughs> it's it's, it's it really literally is. a game. It's a game within a game. They say so in the script. It's a game within a game. It's a game within a game with action figures and everything. Really bad action figures, but action figures nonetheless. So, first impressions. Dalton, when you first received this, what was your first impression? Well, I think we've talked about this a little before, that I have actually watched this story... <gasps> like <laughs> get like out of here two and a half three years ago the only thing i remembered from it is that all the doctors are brought together by the time scoop i did not remember who the big bad guy was i did not remember the master being brought in to help them so once i started reading it Again, nothing came back to me, <laughs> so <laughs> I did not have very much of a, of a memory of it. So I, I love this cover. I, this The cover is really good. I love the artwork for it. I love seeing K-9 and the Cybermen and the Daleks and the TARDIS, all five of the Doctors represented. It's, uh, it's just a cool front cover. The artwork's really nice. And then the back again... It's just it's just a bunch of questions. It's like that could be. I mean, they left out where and when this was happening, but we, <laughs> it's like it's just a lot of questions. So this doesn't tell me anything really. It's something the doctor is in trouble again. Someone is out to get him. Okay, that's every story. So <laughs> yeah, 
I, I didn't remember a damn thing from watching it. And once I started reading it, I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> awesome. It is a beautiful cover. In fact, the only thing that spoils it is that little slash in the lower right-hand corner saying that it's the second edition. Yeah. I think that's on the first edition as well. I'm not sure. I don't, I've never owned... No, I did own the first edition once, but it was destroyed. Now I have the second edition. Ah, that's a shame. Allison, what was your first impression? Well, we have had some god-awful photo covers, so this is gorgeous uh, to have an <laughs> illustrated cover again in comparison. I'm thinking if they actually had the gradient in 1983, that would have been pretty cutting edge for a paperback. Mm-hmm. So I love Dick's prologue. Overall, I was very excited about this one. Awesome. And JG, your first impression is probably about the same as mine was because you probably watched this and read it when it came out, I assume. Right? No, your assumption is entirely correct. Yeah, I, I, I got this. I think I actually got it about a week or two after the TV broadcast, so I didn't come to it spoiled. I, I was able to watch the original as it should be and then... Well, I was going to say read all the lovely juicy additional details that Terrence Dix has put into this, but that might be a slight overstatement. The cover is amazing. I'm really, really glad that everybody thinks so. I think it's, I think it's lovely, and I do remember it having my embossed copy and 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 just finding it very tactile. It's it's a it's a great piece of art, and it's maybe my favorite Target book cover. I'm sorry to anyone who loves Clack, but the, I think this one kind of takes it. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's maybe maybe my have maybe I have lowered expectations after the last couple of books I've helped you with on this podcast. But um, <laughs> this was great. This was such a breezy read, and it, it's kind of pretty much everything you want from uh, from a big old pile of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to do that. Thank I you. I couldn't help it. <laughs> of course you couldn't. <laughs> And Jim? Yeah, the same. So I was there on Friday night uh, watching Children in Need, which is also a bit of a big thing anyway. That was the sort of tent pole of the, the winter programming for the BBC, hosted by Terry Wogan, who was the kind of the, uh, the UK's Johnny Carson, although he's from Ireland. Mm. Um, but he's a much beloved figure, and he introduced the show with much uh, merriment and, and uh, a little bit of piss-taking, to be honest with you. So, uh, and then I loved it. It was just the most amazing Friday night I'd ever had in my life, and probably ever since. And then again, uh, <laughs> a lovely chance to have a, a first night for a second time is when it was repeated the following summer. And that uh, thing that they often did where they'd repeat um, out-of-time episodes, and uh, they repeated it as a four-parter. So I got to see all the wonderful, really bad <laughs> cliffhangers that shouldn't have been cliffhangers. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I've only seen that version once, and it is truly terrible. It's like the story was never meant to have cliffhangers, and lo and behold, we suddenly have them. Kind of insane. Like I said, I saw it the night of the anniversary, though punctuated with pledge breaks. But the interesting thing was the particular PBS station that was doing it had a trivia contest, and I entered it. And another friend of mine named John Barton also entered it. He won first place, and I won second place. And I cannot remember for the life of me what the prize was, but it's very easy for me to go back and find out because a few years back, John sent me a CD recording. He had originally taped it on audio cassettes, the, whole, the entire thing, <laughs> and transferred it to CD. So if I can find that before I edit this together, I will plop in that little clip from 1983 to show you that, yes, indeed, I am number two 
as I generally am. As we announced in our mailing, we were going to have a second place prize category. Well, as it turned out, there were three of you who had exactly the same answers and couldn't break the final tiebreaker, which uh, the one championship person did. So we have three names in John's uh, replica here of Tom Baker's hat. And uh, I'm going to have John pull out the first name, and we're going to let you know what you get in, in the form of a, a, a prize. We've gotten three prizes together that we're going to present to these three people who tied for second. And the first one is Tony Witt of Cedar Bluff, Virginia, the, the winner now of a Doctor Who hat that we have. And Pam Ramsey's got one out front. There it is, Tony. Thanks for answering our question in the Doctor Who trivia contest, and we're sending you this Doctor Who hat, and you'll receive it shortly. Uh, yeah, this was this was exciting because for U.S. fans, this was the very first time that some of us had ever seen Hartnell or Troughton at all. And of course, we weren't even really getting Hartnell except for that beautiful clip from Dalek Invasion of Earth at the very beginning. And for some of us, it was the first time we'd seen Pertwee because we hadn't gotten the Pertwee episodes yet. So this was excitement all around, except for, you know, Tom Baker not being there. But was it the best Friday night of your life <laughs> up um, to that point and since? Well, it wasn't a Friday night for us because we got it on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty damn good Wednesday night, and I think it was Thanksgiving break, so that was doubly good. All right, so where do we start with this? Because, oh my God, there is a lot to cover. What do we like about this novelization? I loved seeing the way the different companions interact with different doctors. Mm-hmm. I think we have we have some moments where like Susan's interacting with fifth doctor when the first doctor and the fifth doctor meet up. It's it's such a nice kind of mixed bag because they're characters that you don't normally see interact and even the interactions of the doctors with each other. It's not something you get. So seeing all of the different personalities come out and really, um, at this point, having read the lion's share of these books, seeing the way they're, they all differ, but yet it, they still, it's, it's weird. It's, it's like they're the same person, but they're different people. <laughs> well, I imagine if any of us met our teenage selves at this point, we would have some difficulty getting along with him or her. Yeah. I know I would. Little, little shit ass. But uh, <laughs> well, to, to whom you would be a profound disappointment, perhaps, or at least oh. I, I in my present form would be a profound disappointment to my teenage self. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain of that. So th- there we go. But I do find it interesting that the animosity between the first Doctor and the fifth Doctor mirrors that of the second and the third. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that would have worked if Tom Baker was actually there because he really would have been a fifth wheel in some ways. They would all hate him. Yes, <laughs> I mean, even although Tom Baker is probably my favorite classic Doctor, I kind of feel the Five Doctors benefits from the fact that he's not there. Uh, he mm. would be such a domineering presence, and I kind of feel it might ruin it a little bit. I don't know. I maybe agree. that's maybe that's too much. I I think it's interesting that um, Terence Dix doesn't take the opportunity to expand on the Fourth Doctor's role in any way. In fact, if anything, it's ever so slightly contracted. Um, which is quite an achievement given how little screen time he has in the televised (laughs) version. But I really do think Tom Baker would just so dramatically unbalance this. And 
if there's anything I think both the novelization and the, the broadcast version of The Five Doctors does well, it's it's balance. It's an incredibly well-balanced piece of work. And it really is a testament mm-hmm. to how good Terence Dix is when he's actually, you know, on top of his game. And whilst this is probably not the best script or necessarily the best novelization that Terence Dix has ever done, you can hear his brain whirring all the way through this from the opening line right to the last page. And that's kind of one of the things I really enjoyed about it. He's he's very authentic to what we get on screen. Um, and just keeping Tom Baker and the fourth doctor in the background, I think it was the right choice in terms of the broadcast. I mean, broadcast didn't have any choice, um, but it was the right choice in terms of the novelization as well. And that that restraint and not trying to give, because everybody wants more fourth doctor, right? Of course, that goes without mm-hmm. saying. But not falling into that trap and, and remaining kind of authentic to his original script is is um, is really the right choice. So I, I kind of really respect him for that decision. Mm-hmm. I believe it's the Target storybook that features a story that has the Fourth Doctor and Romana being able to see the events of the Five Doctors and commenting on them, <laughs> which is actually quite funny, but I cannot remember who wrote it at this point. Uh, maybe someone else will know. Uh, to go back to something that Dalton said about the interactions between the Doctors and the Companions, the one thing that does disappoint me about this novelization is that the interaction between the Fifth Doctor and Sarah at the very end is different. I like it better on screen. Goodbye. Uh, yes, it, it was really nice meeting you. Thank you, Sarah Jane. It's nice meeting you, too. What? I'll explain later. I'm not quite sure how he would have rendered the interaction of Susan and the Fifth Doctor on the page, though, because it's um, not the reaction of a granddaughter meeting her grandfather in a different body for the first time. It's a little more um, lascivious than that. (laughs) Yeah, there are definitely some fructifying glances going on between the two of them, and it's kind of like, oh, God, that's unfortunate. But yeah, hmm. what what else do we like? <laughs> I enjoyed the introduction of the Cybermen and the Daleks, but it's, they're not the whole story, you know. The, the mm-hmm. Cybermen kind of chase the Doctor through, but we we know that clearly they are not the big bad of the story. They are not the person that is making this happen. They are just as much a, a part of this game as the Doctors are and the Companions are. They were brought here to interfere in the history of the game. That was kind of the deal was that people were just brought together and the Time Lords would just watch them fight. Um, mm-hmm. So in in the spirit of the game, that's just like, they're, they're there to get fucked with as well. <laughs> right. And it's Daleks without the S. Oh, in right. This case. Yeah, it's just yeah, the there's one. There's only the one. <laughs> <laughs> so you really know they're not the big bad if it only is one, even mm-hmm. though the new series tells us it only takes one. But yeah, in fact, there's something behind that. Eric Sayward had a big boner for the Cybermen, and he insisted that they be included in the script. And Terrence Dix, quite rightly, didn't much care for them being there and being forced to include them, which is why they meet such a humiliating death at the hands of the uh, Raston warrior robot, which is basically just somebody in a really tight bodysuit jumping up in the air and disappearing (laughs) and landing every once in a while. It's been like being in Covent Garden in London. It's a death by performance artist. (laughs) (laughs) some mime artist flinging him at it was where at you and the next thing is you're on the floor going 
Yeah, it's pretty much that. And I also will say that the Raston Warrior Robot comes off a lot better on the page because you can make him, it, they, much more terrifying. Wait, so you don't you don't think it works? Oh, do we have this graphic of slaughter on the screen as is oh. described on the page? Oh, yes. In fact, one Cyberman actually pukes out white fluid after being shot through the arm, and I always thought that was particularly gross, but then I always wondered, what are they puking up? They don't eat. Maybe well, it's we've just... all been there. <laughs> we've <Yeah>. all been there. <laughs> it's just plastic. It is. JG, you said something earlier. Uh, yes. Do you not think the Reston Warrior is effective on screen? Because I think he's great. I, oh? I, I, I mean, yeah. I'm, I mean, okay, nice bum and all that. But even putting that to one side, um, I think the on-screen realization is amazing. I think it works incredibly well. I, I think the on-page realization is also very effective. Mm-hmm. I think the slaughter is described surprisingly effectively. But I think it's great on screen. Yeah, it's very fast. It's very simple. But it's uh, it's the simplicity that makes it work. It it's not these big clunky Cybermen stomping about the place in in Levi's. It's just this, you know. Thing that exists, and I don't know. I I love the on-screen realization. I'm 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 baffled as to how people can't like that. I probably loved it more in 1983. It's just it's become such a target of derision. All right. Well, but we can blame Kylie Minogue for that, though. Oh really? Oh yeah. That all her ba- all her backing dancers are are, are basically all rest on water robots at this point. <laughs> like, particularly, particularly if you watch the uh, "Can't Get You Out My Head" video, like they're genuinely oh. based on the rest on water robot. That's not me being sarcastic. They <laughs> actually like, are. Yeah, okay. like the costume designer was a Doctor Who fan. A, um, a stylist. So, uh, was yeah. it Will Baker? Is that his name? I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's. <laughs> I love the idea of him going. Just do this; it'll look great. And she's going through the motions and doing all the dances, and it's a very robotic, catchy little dance. And it was only when she got the part in Doctor Who that she found out, oh, oh, you did that to me. You should be grateful her back. You should be grateful it's not the Silurians behind yeah. it. Oh it, it could have been the Merca. I mean, you know, the, the costume is uh, <laughs> imminent. <laughs> this is an actual thing. I, mm-hmm. I, I never knew this. I I'm just thought it to... was a happy coincidence or maybe unhappy coincidence, depending. <laughs> I'm going to have to look this up now. Yeah. yeah, like reading this, I wouldn't have guessed there was such like, a cultural legacy <laughs> the Rassilon Warrior. Oh, God. God, is there ever. There are so many cultural legacies in the story, including our favorite, which is underplayed on the page and vastly overplayed on screen, which is the line, no, not the mind probe. No, not the mind probe. The line doesn't <laughs> exist in the book. I was very angry about that. Yeah. He just says no. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's that's better dramatically, but if you're waiting for that moment... Half shades of um, Robots of Death with the, the second weirdest line reading in Doctor Who history, don't you? Because, I mean, by the way, Paul Jericho, uh, you know, obviously he'd been in Ark of Infinity the previous year, or, or the beginning of the year, but to us little kids watching at the time, he was the, the bad teacher from Grange Hill. The, uh, the, oh. the sort of children's school soap that they had. And they had a storyline where there was a teacher who was beating up the children and being an absolute bastard. And his, st- his storyline ended when another teacher saw him assault a kid. The teacher called him out and then punched him on the jaw. And as he's lying on the floor, the teacher said, slipped on the wet floor, did you? And then that's the last we see him. Oh, wow. So he was like a really big villain in our childhood. And then he plays the Castellan. And then he gets his comeuppance again at the hand of a Stazer Bolt. 
Yes, mm. or in this case, a phaser. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. But it's, it's line reading when he goes, no, not the mind probe. Every direction he's going in is wrong. It's beautiful. <laughs> so I'd like to point out here that all of these rapturous reminiscences are about things that were seen and heard on the episode, and I got none of this for reading this. <laughs> Probably not. So, well, I'm going to say something awful. This is one of the weakest adaptations I feel like I've read. Mm. Uh, my constant thought throughout this is that I wanted to put this book down and read the episode because the episode sounded like it was fantastic. <gasps> but it was the one that was most obviously an adaptation and not a novel of, of all the ones that we've read recently. Mm. I, I think that's fair. I, I think that for those of us who have seen the story, this book reads a lot better than to somebody who hasn't. As a matter of fact, I, I know that to be true, because I read this book about two days before the actual seeing the uh, special. I would have actually, no, four days, because I got it the Saturday before. And then it came out on Wednesday, and I was like, oh... This is actually better than the thing that I read. Well, it's a really challenging task because you have all of these different established characters. And you know, Terrence Stick's usual technique is he gives you a very brief half-sentence description at the beginning. You know, Tegan, who blah, blah, blah. And then he finishes the sentence about what she's doing there. And he has all of these established characters here. And usually he has few enough characters that those initial descriptions and characterizations are enough. But... He is arguably the worst writer, I would say, to do an adaptation like this, because Ooh. I had to keep going back to a previous paragraph to remember which doctor I was reading about. Oof. And I found it really challenging to keep up with because I didn't feel like the voices really came through as strongly as they do with other writers. Mm. But I really wanted to see the episode the whole time. So it was it was not a bad experience. It was just of not just the recent ones we've read, but all the novelizations that we've read, the one that felt most like almost promotional material for a really great episode. Oh, Allison, we finally, finally saw an end to all the hate mail we were getting for how much we dump on dicks. And now mm. we're going to get another <laughs> wave of it. But no, <laughs> well, I, I but think he had right. a really challenging task, but he wasn't the writer for this. I mean, he, he literally was, though. An asinine thing to say, I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He literally yeah. was. He wrote, the, he wrote the first one, I and know. then the second. But I know what you mean. I know, this is like an absurd thing to say. He's not the, right, the person to write his own story, but it's not his strength. I think the funny thing is that, um, I mean, you've done everything in, um, in broadcast order. So you've actually read a lot of the books that are much better than the TV version. And this yes. is a very rare example of, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm having it up too much. The Five Doctors is the best of the eighties because it's got it's yeah. got so many things against it, and it doesn't really drop the ball. The production values are the best they ever do, the most consistently good they do. It's got a lovely cast. It's fan service, but it's also in advancing the story a bit. But the best thing is, it's got the best musical score of any story. Hmm. Yeah, but that's see, the things true. you're describing, I was actually getting that that's what the episode yeah. was like, and I wasn't getting it here. So, it's. Like I said, it's, it's odd in that I, it wasn't a surprise to find out, oh, the episode's actually very good. It was just obvious that there was a great thing that I wasn't getting in this adaptation. But that there was a great thing that existed. I just kept visualizing what great performances they must have been. But I knew I wasn't getting all these readings that you're describing watching the episode. And unfortunately, because it's the cast they've got as well, every one of the guest cast 
it brings something to it. I mean, the fact that Patrick Troughton, I don't think you can really sum up. I've never read a Patrick Troughton book that summed up him oh, because because yeah. um, he brings so much to the script, often because he was just paraphrasing it. He wasn't actually reading the script. He was just doing an approximation <laughs> of it. And even Pertwee has his own styling. And the little clip we've got of Tom Baker, the fact that he's frozen in, in amber because it's from his actual time, the, the peak of his popularity. So, yeah, it, it is a very rare example of a book where... The book could never do justice to the TV show for once because the TV show didn't have sets that were disappointing or location shots that looked like they were in a studio. It, it is absolutely the grandest episode they've ever done to this point. True. Mm. Now, granted, there are other things that aren't as good, but <laughs> those also get hidden by being adapted. I don't, I don't to know what you mean. So. You've just been dumping on the Raston robot, which is the best thing ever. <laughs> When, when oh, you're 12 years see, old. See, it's not honestly. just me. It's not just no, me. It's, it, no, it, it is literally just Tony. Um, <laughs> the Raston yeah, robot, when you're 12 years old, is the most breathless, amazing sequence ever done. Well, I didn't say I didn't like it when I was 13. <laughs> I just don't like it I'm when sorry. I'm 53. So, did you grow up? <laughs> no one told me that was part of the deal. I'm still 12 years old, so do you. <laughs> oh, I know. I still have parts of me that are... My teenage self would not be disappointed in me still talking about five doctors, no, I have to no say. I, my teenage self would be really proud of me. Now, what you want to make of that I is anybody's guess, about but it still. Since. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking more about the life-threatening peril that Sarah finds herself in as soon as she gets into the death zone when she falls down what sounds like a Minecraft deep crevice. But on screen is a very, very gentle inclination down a hill. Oh, okay, mind, why didn't I listen to you? And still has to be winched up with Bessie. So, yeah, I, I think it's moments like that. And, pro and it provides our first fake cliffhanger in the four-part version as well. Oh, does it really? Yeah. And it's not even oh god! It's not even they cut it when she falls off the the edge of the precipice into the fog. They cut it when she's landed safely and says, "Oh, why didn't I listen to K9?" Oh, K9, why didn't I listen to you? Really? And that's the cliffhanger, and you're like, "Really? You want me to tune in tomorrow for this?" Why didn't I listen to you? In the defence, have you ever fallen over on ice? Oh yeah. And doesn't it feel yeah. like the whole world is? is falling apart when you do it. Yes, but I don't have to be winched back up by car. <laughs> Speak for yourself. There's plenty of times I've been need to be winched up off the floor, but that's usually because of gin. Mm. <laughs> yeah, vodka for me, but yeah, I get I get you. Uh, <laughs> well let's see. What what else do we like about this adaptation or what do we dislike if there's anything can, can i ask a question of course um, you can does terence dix have something against patrick troughton um no his bone to pick is more of john pertwee i'm glad you brought that up but why do you think it's against patrick troughton i don't recall in any of the second doctor books that we've read him being referred to as little and dix refers to him as little so many times <laughs> the throughout fellow? this book the yes. little fellow the little doctor and i'm like how little was he and i looked up and patrick <laughs> Trotman was five <laughs> foot eight and it's yeah. like that's like 
average height, but he's I guess, shorter than the others. Though. I was gonna say, yeah, compared to the other doctors, he is the little one. So when, you, when yeah. you've got, I just like the the, the second first doctor. <laughs> Actually, the, the third or fourth <laughs> first Doctor, he's taller than the original first Doctor as well. But all of the other actors are six foot plus, and then you got like yeah. like Pertwee and Tom Baker are six foot three. So mm-hmm. it, it's not just the little fella in terms of height; it, it's just the third Doctor being the condescending little shit, like he often was. <laughs> okay, yeah, I just I kept seeing him referred to as the little one, and I'm like, wow, has he got something against him? But okay, no. I think it's also because we've we've got to the point where like the second Doctor isn't a character anymore. The second Doctor is a, pe- uh, and this is generally true of the five Doctors, and you can argue whether it's a good thing or a bad thing because it's a good it's a good shorthand. But the the second Doctor is just a collection of ticks now. Yeah, so. You know, we have a lot of a lot of ways that the second Doctor, yeah, he's the little fellow, he's the cosmic hobo, he's you know, he's fallen into his own stereotype. He's not an active character anymore, um, and so to a certain extent, I think Dix is also falling back on on those kind of tropes, and some of them he's responsible for, and some of them come from. Uh, well, f- fandom, the general sort of uh, milieu around Doctor Who in the mid uh, to early eighties. But yeah, so people get used to these kind of shorthand versions of of the Doctors, and that's just what the second Doctor has kind of become calcified as at this point. It's less to do with Troughton, it's less to do with the way that Troughton performs, or even his physical stature. They've just decided that's, they, in heavy inverted commas, have decided that's his character trait, like, you know, um, John Pertwee is the dandy, or, you know, Tom Baker is the bohemian, or whatever. They're just these kind of Mm -hmm. uh, delete-as-appropriate, lazy-stroke, convenient short hands um and i think i think as much as anything it's yeah. just that absolutely yeah. and I, I think you're right because he's handled so much better in the three doctors but even there he's, yeah he's not he's not playing the doctor yeah. is he pertwee's the only one playing the doctor <clears throat> trout's playing the second doctor and suddenly the second doctor becomes that collection of mannerisms which then dicks remembers and recreates for the five doctors in the same way that the first doctor if you watch an unearthly child and that's uh, at the point we're looking at now, it's the only Hartnell story that's been repeated since he left the show. So it's it's fresher in people's minds as the very very grumpy Doctor that William Hartnell said, "Look, you need to warm this character up. He's too he's too grumpy," and eventually they mm-hmm. do. So all of the charm of the first Doctor is forgotten in every adaptation that Terence Dix writes, he, and, and and the Philip Hinchcliffe one as well. Hmm. They talk about uh, he's a very austere, grumpy, stern man, which doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily match the first Doctor that we see in a lot of his run. Yeah. And even on the page, we had a very different impression of the Hartnell Doctor than we get through this. And for that matter, I, I understand Dalton's concern to some degree, because when we read the Troughton books, we realized he was <laughs> deceptively harmless, but he was actually like Shiva, destroyer of worlds. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it came to alien threats like ice warriors, he's more than willing to just slaughter anything. <laughs> and that doesn't come across here at all. Mm-hmm. But you're right about Dix having a bone to pick with somebody, and it's Pertwee. <clears throat> I thought it was Sarah Jane. Well, uh, why did you think that? Uh, she's consistently written as a cowering chicken throughout in a way that seemed kind of strange. He does not like companions that aren't damsels in distress. But, well, but Tegan's almost a point of view character, I'd argue. Yeah. That's true. Which That's was kind true. of refreshing after the uh, extreme Tegan hate we had in our last novelization. But but I, I thought that Dix's insights were often 
put in Tegan's mind, it seemed like. But uh, Sarah really kind of screamed and cowered and, you know, just what sort of went into like fetal position throughout in a way that seemed... I kept expecting uh, an in-story explanation for it because we have this concept of sort of fear emanating from the tower and that that this is explained to Tegan and to the brigadier. We're told the brigadier doesn't, you know, what to present as experiencing this emotion because it's not befitting a soldier. And I thought we were going to have some kind of in-story explanation about why it was hitting Sarah in a different way. But no, she's just cowardly in the story. Well, he gives us a little more than we get on screen because Dix does point out that Sarah was resentful of mm-hmm. being carted back to earth and you don't get that on screen really and that's nothing no fault of uh, Liz Slayton's it's just not in the script whereas here the Sarah that appears here seems to set up the Sarah that we get later in school reunion a lot more fully that the doctor was her life and he tried to fob her off with a uh, a canine which then <laughs> ended up breaking down wouldn't you be mad to yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is a line where Dick says something along the lines of Sarah had never really accepted the role of the damsel in distress. And it's like, that's almost Dick saying, yeah, she's not a proper companion because she doesn't do enough of the cowering and the screaming. But remember that Terence Dix also has form for this, because if you read back on a lot of his um, Sarah Jane books, he has Sarah fainting a lot. Oh, God, um, yes. You know, obviously... Mm-hmm. This is the big Doctor Who panto story for a lot of us. This is the big celebration of everything. Everything's a little bit heightened. So I just want to say, you know, if, if Terence Dix is saying that Sarah Jane faints, oh no, she didn't. <laughs> right. I see what you did there. His own head cannon, she has a low blood pressure problem. Yeah, yeah that might be it. I, she also only screams once in this whole story. And it's when she's falling down that very slight incline. Which is just lovely. You have to give Liz Sladen props, don't you, for just throwing herself into the part, even as she's throwing herself down this very gentle hillock in Wales. Uh, the gentle slope of doom. <laughs> slope of doom. I, I, it has to be known as that. There's, there's no other way to describe it. And I've rarely seen any actor in anything, TV, movies, or whatever, commit so hard to trying to look so threatened by so little as Elizabeth Sladen manages to pull off that. I really, like, she deserves an Oscar or a BAFTA or something for that. I think it's an amazing performance. Contempt is maybe a strong word for the way that Terence Dix treats her in this novel, but however dismissively he treats her, like, her one performance in The Gentle Slope of Doom blows all of that out of the water. So uh, point, point to Team Sladen, I think. And in, yeah. the, in the book, another thing that is improved, actually, is that gentle slope is on the edge of an abyss. So it's, yes. she's stuck there, but it could have been much worse if she hadn't have clung on to the tiny bit of frozen grass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And that's something else I like better about the book. The fact that the death zone comes off as much more menacing, especially, uh, I can't remember which doctor companion pairing does this, but one of them ends up in the ruins of a city. And that sounds awesome. That's not what we get on screen. As a matter of fact, uh, I I have never known whether or not they used exactly the same location for the Eye of Orion as they used for the Death Zone. It looks like they never leave Wales. It's within about a mile. The whole, all the location work is within about a mile of each other. Oh, Christ. and within within a short car dis- distance from uh, Port Merion, where they shot Mask of Andragora and the Prisoner. A lot oh. of fans, when they're doing their travel without the TARDIS tour of North Wales. 
they can do that in a day or that. But it all looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. And they were filming this during, uh, God, what was the season they were filming this in? Because it looks like they're all cold. Well, it'd be probably January-ish, wouldn't it? It'd be yeah, I think so. Because you can see people's breaths and they're they're obviously very chilled to the bone. And yet the Eye of Orion also looks like that, even though the Eye of Orion is supposed to be peaceful and calm and lovely and alien. And no, it's whales. So it's it's much it's much better on the page. I'm gonna walk back what I said about Terence Dix being uh, not the person to adapt this, even though it's his story. Maybe he's the perfect person to adapt it because like, I'm looking at a page here. We're told uh, that Susan and Turlow were interacting, which, of itself, is I think one of the most striking combinations of characters we have. You know, the first co- companion and the most recent companion together, but. Mm-hmm. Both teenagers, but one like the nicest girl in the world, and then uh, the other one just a flat-out psychopath. Um, mm. But in the same way that I, we've talked about when we were reading the second Doctor novelizations, and I, when I say we, I mean I ranted about it endlessly, that uh, the second Doctor's voice and presence seemed to be the hardest one to communicate on the page. Mm-hmm. And then I think the second most challenging one seems to be the fifth Doctor of the ones that, that we've read so far. But uh, Dix didn't do a great job of writing Susan with much personality either. Mm. But everyone seems to do a tremendously funny job with Turlo, I feel like. And we even had that in this story as well. So on the screen, you're revisiting all these different actors and performances and remembering why you love them. But on the page, we're remembering what characters Terrence Dix does and doesn't like and does and doesn't write very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it is actually in some ways a similar experience as we spent several years reading, obviously, many writers, but more Terrence Dix than anyone else, revisiting Terrence Dix performances of different characters. Mm-hmm. That's true. I actually have one positive and one negative about Susan in this book. The positive is that we never get her scooped up by the time scoop on screen. She just appears. And I I almost suspect that's a remnant from the Sixth Doctor's script, because she also was supposed to be an android duplicate, if I don't remember correctly. So that makes some sense that she would appear out of nowhere and it turns out, oh, it's not Susan after all. But on the page, we actually get to see London post-Dalek invasion, which I appreciate. I mean, it's not hugely detailed, but it's actually quite nice. Uh, So I've got a question for the experts in Dalton. I don't know if you share this feeling of being kind of outnumbered and lightly menaced. Uh, (laughs) Being outnumbered three to two. Well, and you, yes. uh, Outnumbered three to two. Uh, How much of the selection of companions was based on preference and how much on who was available and willing to do it? All of the above. The latter. Yeah. (laughs) They had a a shopping list and then they, they contracted or they spoke to... Like Deborah Watling, Fraser Hines, and Fraser Hines could do like one day. Deborah Watling couldn't make it because she was on tour, and and then people just kept dropping in and out, and that's why Robert Holmes was going, "I can't do this. It's it's too much of a shopping list," and he gave up on it. And then Terence Dix was going, "I wrote the War Games. I can do anything." <laughs> Well, it was so much like the war game. Yes, yeah, he's kind of making it up as he goes along. Um, The location stuff was shot in (laughs) March, but um, a a UK March can be quite a bitter time, so it was uh, especially in North Wales. 
Even in summer, you've got to wear a jumper. Well, but so. in the war games, he can write all these different, you know, troops coming in from different eras and, and, and places. And he can cast that with some kind of human being on two legs. But I can't imagine writing a story where you're not sure what characters you're going to get and which ones are going to have a day available and which ones have an unlimited shooting availability. That's But that's why he, he did a lot of it with uh, Doctor One, Two, Three, Four, Five, yeah, plus Companion. So a lot of the Companions are written as interchangeable. It's yes. enough, you, you made a really good point there, Alison, about the fact that the, the two companions that get paired together are the two unearthly children. Oh, the yeah. first, the yeah. very first yeah. companion and the most recent companion, and they are the unearthly children. So it comes around quite nicely. Yeah, it does. I kind of wish they'd been given more to do, of course. because Or anything. Or anything to do. Susan gets to trip over, twist her ankle. Excellent. Good work there. Turlo gets to paint a picture and sit in the TARDIS looking slightly pensive. Yes. It's not great characterization. I know there's a lot of elements to deal with, but but that still feels like it's sliding the side down ever so slightly. Well, this is like when, when fans go, uh, oh, if they don't do a multi-doctor story for the anniversary, I'll be really disappointed. And I'm just thinking, look, they did it once in, in for the tenth anniversary and once for the twentieth anniversary, and now Big Finish has done it a lot. Have you not, have you not got enough? So many times. That's what I, I, I love the idea of them doing a sixtieth anniversary story, which it, it appears like they're just doing one old Doctor and companion in a different way. It's really clever. Yeah, celebrating the history of the show in a different way. Yeah, and if you really want that multi-doctor thing, you can just watch the... Uh, what was the name of the, uh, the film that Peter Davison directed and wrote? The, the Five-ish Doctors, Five-ish Doctors yeah. Reboot. Five-ish Doctors Reboot, thank you. <laughs> yes, which is fun in its own way. But yes, if you really want that nostalgia kick, watch that instead. Oh, the, the, the negative thing. And this might be a good way to segue into anything we don't like about the book if we're ready to do that. But Dix has Susan say, run doctor, rather than run grandfather. Supposedly in the script, that's so that the Dalek can overhear it and know that he's chasing after the doctor. But it's not something that Susan would ever say. And in fact, earlier in the book, she says uh, she's thinking about the man she sometimes called grandfather. And you're like, wait, what? Are, are you throwing shade on the idea that she's not his granddaughter? I don't quite get it. But when we were reading First Doctor novelizations, we always noted whether or not the writer seemed to think that he was her grandfather or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I thought it, it was would... sort of continued to be sort of an open, unsettled question. Yeah. It, it's not the sort of unsettled question on screen, even though some fans try to make it so. But yeah, because they can't handle the idea that Hartnell may have had sex, presumably. But uh, yeah, it always rubbed me the wrong way. And it turns out that, as we'll find out from the Goodreads comments, there is a reason for that, which I was not aware of. So thank you, Dave Davis, when we get there. They need to go on Mari Povic. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Uh, Terence Dix, presumably a big fan of the looms. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Well, we kind of know Eric Sayward. Oh, God. Do I have to bring this up? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. You really have to bring this oh, up. Oh, no. I don't want to, though, because it's awful. He, he wrote a short story for Doctor Who magazine. The Radio Times, actually. Radio yeah. Times? Radio, Radio Times special. They treated this to another special ten years after the last one. Oh, God, really? <laughs> Jesus Interesting Christ. use of the word treated. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, treated more like subjected. In this story, Susan is not the doctor's granddaughter, but is instead, oh God, how does this go again? She's a descendant of Rassilon, I believe. The Lady it's Lady Larn, I think, is she? The Lady Larn. She's some sort of uh, Gallifreyan royalty that the doctor took care of. Oh, God. Sorry, it's me snoring at the most boring twist ever. I'm ready on the bus. Well, I'm sorry. I'm always very annoyed when a character turns out to be important because of some kind of, you know, hereditary connection. Rather than just in her own right, because she's brilliant. Or, or, well, potentially brilliant. She's a bit shit on TV. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. But luckily, that short story is, to my knowledge, has never been treated as canon by anybody. Or referenced by anybody except And for it's us. a shame because The Five Doctors is the greatest thing ever. And the Radio Times special is also the greatest thing ever. When when you you know, when we all got that, it was the most amazing publication because it had what we felt was the entire history of Doctor Who in in one magazine. Yes. And it had loads of photos we'd never seen and it had a chart to tell us all the stories that had happened and all the companions and it and then behind the scenes characters, you know, introducing us to the people who did special effects and the music and everything. And at the back, a picture of the next Doctor, Colin Baker. Yep. I tried to steal my cousin's copy of that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he lent it to me and just never asked for it back. And I thought for months, oh, maybe he, maybe I can just keep it. And no, he finally say, Would you forget something it. like that? Well, no, no. In fact, I now have a copy of it after all these years, but I never look at it. But yes, at the time, it was very, very... Very exciting. Speaking of excitement, I do want to ask JG, given his special knowledge of audios, what he thought of the companion piece, as it were, to the story, which is the audio drama The Five Companions. It's a really nice idea. And that's it. It's, it's one of those things, I'll never criticise Big Finish for, for taking a swing. Um, and it's it's definitely that. But at the same time, yeah, you, you know, being contrived. I'm trying to be so polite here, I have no idea why. Uh, after 180 episodes of talking about Big Finish, I, I feel I've earned the right to not have to be polite about things <laughs> right. anymore. Um but, you know, like, I mean, it's got a good cast. Uh, you know, it, it, I'll never, ever be sad to hear those people get together, particularly it's almost lovely to hear uh, William Russell. It's 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 a nice idea. I, uh, yeah, it's it's lovely. Mm-hmm. I'll, 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 I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, just to explain it to uh, Dalton and Allison, the concept is that I think Barusa also grabbed a few other companions, but just put them in the wrong place. <laughs> So he ended up grabbing Ian. He ended up grabbing Sarah Kingdom, presumably before her death, but 
possibly after because Big Finish does something weird with her. Very ambiguous. Yes. Steven Taylor, who um, Allison always likes to call Steve, and Polly. And there's one other, and I can't remember. Oh, it's Nissa. <laughs> This is in it, yeah. Wait, yeah. wait. Is this like a long-standing beef that I'm just now finding out about that I've been no, dishonoring no. him by no, calling just him by the shameful name, Steve? No, you just always did. <laughs> just pointing it out. No beef. None whatsoever. Very vegan. <laughs> so, yeah. It's also it's also a bit lazy, though, because, again, we have Daleks, we have Suntarans, and if you can bear the excitement, dinosaurs. Oh, God. It's, it's a bit... Yeah, you know, I, you, you get what they're going for, and it's 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 a nice idea to have a parallel adventure like that. You know, it's it's it is genuinely a, a sweet idea, and I I think it was well worth doing. I do wish the end results had been a little bit stronger, though. Yeah, and it's weirdly placed because it takes place between the moment that the Fifth Doctor disappears via transmat from the Death Zone and appears in the capital. The entire contrived, story. Contrived, you say? Contrived, I say. Yes. Very much. Well, we've had much more contrived story gaps than that before. But yeah, the entirety of the Fifth Doctor and Turlo's run on Big Finish is essentially in that weird gap. And for that matter, don't even get me started on the Fifth Doctor and Perry. But speaking <laughs> of which, the things we didn't like about this book, anything <laughs> that you didn't like about it. So this is just something with with me, and I, I felt uh, kind of in line with Tegan in this. The whole thing with the uh, I don't want to even say if it's it's a chessboard because they said it was ten by ten, but um, the master working out that whole bit with <laughs> Pi and <laughs> figuring his way out across, and then Dix basically says, "Oh yeah, it was." He just worked out this way to get across, and even Tegan was confused by it. And I'm just like, "That you didn't need to tell us that." We didn't yeah. need to know that. I don't need to know how to figure it out because now I'm like, I want to know. And he didn't tell us. <laughs> mm-hmm. He tells us more on the page than he does on screen because Anthony Inley is just running across that board however he wants. Mm. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's a plot that works best with, I feel like, very little exposition or pretense to yeah. intricacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The plot's yeah. not the point. Everyone knows that. Yeah. No need to wallet. I also have trouble believing that Tegan ever asked the doctor, say, that chessboard, how does that work? And that he told her. I, I just can't see them having mm-hmm. that discussion ever. Yeah. Okay, what else? Talking about the master, um, I feel like we just saw him, and so having him back again yeah. just feels like enough enough already like i get that it's an anniversary story i get that like we want to have him and and i enjoyed him kind of doing something a little different with the fact that you know the time lords want him to help with the doctor and he kind of does and then kind of turns on them in the end but (laughs) it it just felt like why why have him there (laughs) yeah i yeah Especially since Barusa says, oh, I gave you an enemy to fight. It's like you gave them three. Mm-hmm. The Cybermen are there and you gave them a single Dalek. And, oh, and the Yeti. And, oh, and the Yeti. Yeah, that's right. So it's like, okay, fine. If it was for nostalgia's sake. I, I guess it's kind of interesting on screen anyway mm-hmm. to see the Pertwee Doctor encountering the Master and recognizing him, but realizing something's different. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because obviously Delgado didn't get a good send off. But 
Yeah, we did just see him, and we did just see him in a, well, not a better story, but a different story. So, yeah. yeah. We we just saw the Master is pretty much the perfect description of the Davison era, though. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I will agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, I, don't, I do feel that he's kind of... He's sort of weirdly ineffective towards the end of this story uh, on the page. And that's um, it's kind of one of the things that I didn't particularly like about this book. But for all that one can criticise Anthony Inley's performance, if one so chooses, at least he does have a little bit of, like, screen presence. Okay, it's camp panto villain presence, but it's some kind of presence. Whereas when that performance is sort of flattened out onto the page... I mean, it could be literally anyone. It, it, it could be, I don't know, one of the timeless children, or it could be the Rani, or it could be just like, just put any word in front of the, and, you know, that do. That's fine. It's, it, it's incredibly flat on the page, and it kind of slightly speaks to the, the, the paucity of ideas that, that Terence Dix has for the master. And so it's one of those rare occasions where we have to praise Anthony Inley for actually improving the role <laughs> rather, than, rather, than, rather than detracting from it. But, but when you watch it, the master is definitely a presence there and his scowling at the end about you know i came here a little bit unwillingly admittedly but you know i was really prepared to help you and you all turned your back on me like like he's able to at least bring across a little bit of the the apparently genuine hurt that the master has had um about being rejected by the doctor whereas on the page it's just it's just it's just doesn't quite come across somehow and that's without him Mortality, kind of looming over the whole procedures. Um, so yeah, yeah, the master is is not an effective on page presence here. You're right. He is more effective on screen. He even gets his own cliffhanger, if I remember yes. correctly, coming downstairs. Which is which is the third rubbish cliffhanger in the four part version. Well, I think the whole thing is that it's it's a musical staircase, isn't it? Because at yeah. every step he takes, you hear the dum 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 dum. <laughs> Oh my god! So this is why it is really unfair on your novices because we've grown up loving this show. It is, and you can tear it apart for being a bit flimsy, but the thing is, it's not supposed to be a four-course meal. It's supposed to be cake. No. And if you're if mm-hmm. you're questioning the nutritional value of cake, there's something wrong with you. This is cake, <laughs> right? Yeah. But yeah, this this has been a part of my life ever since it was first broadcast. It's been a point in my life in so many fan events ever since. I once went to a fan event where, as part of the cabaret, um, the actor Nicholas Pegg, who now plays the one of the Daleks in the you know, in the Dalek casing in the modern series, recreated mm-hmm. the council chamber scene with a long table and four chairs, and him bouncing from oh, chair God. to chair, playing every part. <laughs> and all he's doing is reciting the script from memory. But it was hilarious because he's he's putting everything into it, you know, right from the. Uh, with the very slurred delivery of Barusa to the master spitting everywhere, uh, I may be seated. I'm just really hamming it up. Brilliant. And it's, it's, this is a show where I can still hear all the music, every musical cue, every line of it is, is in my head. It's the, it's the best form of cake. It's Doctor Who cake. It mm. is confectionery. Mm. I completely agree with that. And it's it's one of those confectionaries that even has caused me to come up with some seriously fan-winky headcanon. 
in terms of the whole business of immortality, because uh, if we accept the whole timeless child business that uh, JG mentioned... Let's not. Mm. <laughs> well... I, I, I want to say this. <laughs> that if Tecteun did indeed torture the timeless child to get the idea of regeneration, and then she gave it to two of her best pals, who we see on screen in that particular episode, who are probably Rassilon and Omega, those are the two other Time Lords that we've ever seen even close to having immortality. So maybe that's the deal there. They have unlimited regenerations, whereas uh, apparently the Time Lords can give out regenerations just as a gift if someone does them a solid. You have to fill up a punch card before you can redeem your immortality. (laughs) Five solids and the six, you get a regeneration. But that that timeless child thing, um, one thing that's good about that is it does inform this story in the way that this story informs past and the future. Because the suggestion is that the Time Lords can decide whether or not you qualify to get an extension to their 13 lives thing, which suggests that they're all immortal. I mean, we can live forever, barring accidents. But they've put an artificial block on the thing to stop people mm. going mad because they realise how much of a curse immortality is. Rassilon's clearly got it. The Doctor's got it for some reason. But if you are part of Time Lord society, they enforce it. So maybe there's something we've never seen. There's maybe they've got this thing where, yeah, you're a bit past it now. You've gotten to the end of your 13th life. Just go through that door there. And, and then, you, and then you're, you're absorbed into the Matrix and ta-da! Part of a Logan's Run scenario. Yeah. Gallifrey sucks in general, but definitely it sucks in terms of being a uh, free and open society because it just sounds positively dystopian at times. And I I think that might be the case because we even got it as early as uh, Brain of Morbius when the Doctor goes to Karn and says that the Sisterhood has the ability to be immortal, but he says you could synthesize this stuff by the gallon in the laboratory, but the results would be appalling. So that appears to be a trope that comes up quite often with this. It's like whenever people say, oh, why, why did the Doctor leave Gallifrey? And they keep coming back to this as this eternal question, why did the Doctor leave Gallifrey? Have you met the Time Lords? They're mad. <laughs> they're, abs- they're, they're boring and they're mad, which is like the worst combination. So, <laughs> And um, after we, you know, each successive time we see them, their in- interior decor is just insane. <laughs> Oh, God. The, the water feature. You're yeah. talking about the water feature, aren't you? I'm talking about everything. The whole thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's true. I was just thinking about Flavia and the Doctor coming down that staircase, and there's a water feature with this this pathetic little fountain going squirt, 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 squirt. And it's like, why is that there? <laughs> that makes no sense. Ark of Infinity is cream leather mm. sofas. Oh, that's I, mean, right. I think the water feature is the least of their <laughs> That's true. That That is true. The health spa of Rassilon. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you've, got the, you, you've got the scrolls of Rassilon, you've got the ring of Rassilon, the coronet of Rassilon, you've got the uh, IKEA discount voucher of Rassilon. Oh, can I say something about the coronet of Rassilon? <laughs> My God, that's a terrifying concept. Because if we're talking about dystopian societies, Rassilon had a coronet that allowed him to make anyone do what he wanted. Jesus, God. It's no wonder the Time Lords rose up against him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 
there there are a few little tidbits like that in this <laughs> it's almost like uh this confectionery this completely non-nutritional cake has a little bit of little vitamin pills stuck in it here and there but not many it's fortified, fortified. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh good god and, and again like turnsticks kind of does this a lot is every time he comes back to the Time Lords, having created them in the first place as these super beings, every time he comes back, he makes them slightly lesser and slightly more ridiculous. To the point, yeah. to the point where their leader, uh, Barusa, who gets immortality by wearing a silly hat <laughs> and really camp gloves, um, and then goes mad and needs to be removed. His no, his only surviving member of the council is really desperate to not get the job of president, isn't she? <laughs> Yes. Flavia, yeah. Flavia is like, um, Doc, Doctor, you are really irresponsible. We've had so many tr- problems with you. We've wanted you off our planet. So many- you need to be the president now. Because, bitch, I ain't playing. <laughs> and, and in the book, she glances at the guard's phasers, sorry, stasers, when she says that. It's like there'll be severe penalties, as if suggesting he's going to be shot dead if he doesn't do it. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Sounds like a reasonable democracy to me. I really don't know what you guys are complaining no. about. Yeah. That's what they call a bounded choice, I believe. Like your <laughs> money or your Doctor, life. if you don't take this job, we're going to shoot you and turn you into Maxil. <laughs> oh, you chose to become the president. You had an option. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else we'd like to say about this book? Long silence. I think we've about, we've about covered everything I had. So Okay. Yeah. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.92 which is quite high. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it five stars and actually starts his review by saying, yes, Tony, you read that correctly. Five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, if I was being objective, this book wouldn't get four. But as I listen to watch and read Doctor Who for entertainment, who needs objectivity? That little who joke was unintended, but I'm reminded that there was one in the televised version of the story which was left out of the book, thankfully. Yes, agreed. Most of what's bad about the book was also on screen, though there are a couple of things better on TV. The script had Susan calling the doctor doctor, but Carol Ann Ford point-blank refused rightly pointing out that she'd always called him grandfather. In the book, she's back to the script version calling him doctor most of the time. Well, the one time anyway. And there's yet another regeneration for Barusa. That's three for the doctor's one. No wonder he was panicking about not being president for much longer. I've come to think of it coming back to a point of Jim's about Barusa. Dick seems to really regret what he did to Barusa here because in his book, The Nine Doctors, he brings Barusa back, but he brings back the Invasion of Time version of Barusa, which is just strange. The ranking system for the Cybermen seems a little confused, but then Terrence Dix was reluctant to use them, blaming, quote, that bloody say word, comma, for their inclusion. (laughs) 
The first doctors claim that he has little left to fear at his age, given that he's the youngest version of him on the planet, and two older versions are visited by phantoms, jars a little. Well, yeah, we, the, the, fifth, the first doctor's companions all got lost. And then there's season 6B. We didn't even talk about that. <laughs> oh my god, we have to talk about that before we can go any further. Okay, Goodreads tabled for just a second. The second doctor knows what's going to happen to him. How? Hmm. Well, it's... Wibbly wobbly timey wimey <laughs> stuff. It's, it's because this second doctor comes from the pages of TV comic. Oh. So after he escapes from the war games, he hides out in the UK, becomes a TV celebrity, and then is attacked by scarecrows who are controlled mm-hmm. by the Time Lords and eventually forced to regenerate into Pertwee. So, is that actually what happens in TV comics? Oh, it's amazing. Holy it's shit. It's so, so good. But then there's the season 6B theory, which is the Doctor escaped from the war games and continued on. I think this is where JG needs to take over because it's got audio relevance. Uh, I mean, it it does have audio relevance, but how far down that rabbit hole do you really want to go? <laughs> um, it de- I suppose it depends how much you want to adhere to the season 6B theory, I personally think it's bollocks, but that's just me. I am very much against what Big Finish seem to believe, and they're more than happy to exploit the season 6B theory. It's one of those things that I think is sort of genuinely interesting as a sort of thought experiment. It's just the moment you try and work it into literally anything to actually do with the show, it sort of falls apart. And that's kind of the liminal space I think Big Finish are actually really good at occupying. They do a lot of that kind of stuff, and, and I kind of wish they did more of it now. I wish their, their, their output was a little bit more experimental in the way that they used to play around with concepts like this. So I kind of, it's, again, I feel like I'm repeating myself from what I said earlier, but I kind of, I really admire the swing that Big Finish take when they try and sort of cross the season 6B threshold, even if actually doing it is probably, yeah, I think spin-offs are probably um, exactly the place that, that that belongs. But also the, the fact that Big Finish is catering for an audience who wants more. That's why they're listening to the audio. So the lovely idea is that they... I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm given the quality of recent audios, I might quite strongly dispute that point. <laughs> but for those people who want more, this is where going, okay, well, let's do something beyond what you saw on TV with the second Doctor and casting... Michael Troughton as the second Doctor, you know, as uh, the son as the father, is a nice way around it. Yeah, it it, it, it works relatively well. I guess I've really enjoyed what I've heard so far, but... Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> More not necessarily better. There we go. Yes, uh, I think so, as, as, as fans, we don't often care. We just want more. We yeah. really don't, do we? <laughs> we really don't. Anyway, back to Dave Davies' comment. Uh, Pertwee's doctor was supposed to accompany the brigadier before Baker finally dropped out. And with this arrangement, the scene with the ghosts of Zoe and Jamie makes more sense, more or less. Though those companions ought not to have recognized the third doctor, even if they'd been real. As broadcasted in the book, it's the second doctor recalling events that to him had yet to occur, and he's going to do that again, and the next time he appears, yeah. It could, I suppose, be said that the doctor's memory is somewhat augmented by the presence of a future self, but that doesn't explain the second doctor remembering Omega. That story included Doctor 3. Sorry, I misread that, so Doctor 2 should have forgotten it. These errors were woven into the story, and it would be difficult to correct them in the book. For me, this story would get somewhere between three and four stars, but for one thing, it is is the only novelization of a broadcast story that I read before watching it on TV. I miss the occasional episode of some stories, and my memory is hazy about some, but I did watch them all, at least partially. In the UK, 
the book was published before broadcast, and I was able to read it several times before I heard Richard Herndahl's voice. I think he did a great job just as more recently David Bradley did, but neither of them look or sound much like William Hartnell. In this book, Hartnell is the first Doctor because when I first read it, he was the only Doctor to have played that role. Of course, the moving pre-credits clip was made redundant. This book also happened to be the favorite novelization of one David MacDonald, who would go on to play more versions of the Doctor than any other actor, <laughs> though the last version hasn't yet been shown, so I'm in good company. And finally, Gabriel Marrow gives it five stars as well, and says... This is probably my favorite classic Who story. Not only do we get five Doctors, we also get Susan, the Brigadier, Sarah Jane, Ramona Two, Tegan, and Turlo, as well as cameos by Liz Shaw and Mike Gates. I can't wait to watch this episode. Wait, you haven't yet? Oh, okay. Presumably Gabriel's reviewing the book, but hasn't seen the TV show yet. Yes. Which is the... Which is, the what a weirdo. I can't imagine a person yeah, like that. I, I can't either. I think that's the yeah. right way around. It's how I saw most of the 70s, read most of the 70s and 60s. Well, it, it works for us too, most of the time. So, Dalton, out of five stars, <laughs> what would you give this? I had initially given it a four, but I think I'm going to give it a 3.5. I don't think it's the strongest story. Yeah, it was a fun story. I enjoyed seeing all the doctors. I enjoyed seeing all the companions come back could do without the master um but yeah it feels very much kind of like a like we always say with terrence sticks most of his stories are kind of script to page he's not really adding anything to it to improve the story and given that the story does have so many characters and so much to do with all of them it does feel very kind of rushed this this was a relatively short book which we've had stories in the past where we've gotten 40 more pages out of the book and the person really add the you know the authors really add to the story to flush it out but yeah not horrible so i'll give it a 3.5 okay and allison i'm gonna go 2.5 and i'm kind of afraid that some panelists will come through the screen like in the ring um because i remember i'm not writing the episode here just the novelization and Terrence Dix's problem is that, um, you know, he is, in terms of, like, mean mode and median, he is the mode of adaptations. He is, by definition, perfectly fine. And <laughs> the usual here... No, I mean, it, okay, I, I, I'm applying mathematical concepts here in a, in a kind of a sketchy way, because um, that, that doesn't automatically determine how other writers distribute around him in terms of quality. But he is usually pretty good. Once in a while, very good. Once in a while, pretty bad. But this is a pretty good adaptation, and it made me want to watch an episode that is great. But the novelization itself, eh. It was fine. It was pretty good. Everything that I really enjoyed about it was, I think, straight from the script, if I understand correctly. So I, it, it seemed like more like a, a big trailer for, for a great episode that I haven't seen yet. So as I was the relevant quote from the book here, a little cosmic angst, <laughs> just a twinge. Just a twinge. And JG? I think I'm going to go three and a half on this one as well. It's, it's probably as good a novelization as you're going to get from Terrence Dix, as far as this is concerned. I don't mean that to sound as pejorative as it does, uh, but, you know... It's Terence Dix at the end of the day. You, you you get what you're you get what you're getting. Um, I think it manages to capture 
the flavor of the five doctors but maybe not the full meal so there is a lot of the of the the joy and the pleasure of the of the uh, tv episode in this but it's not quite getting it all across there's no possible way i can uh, separate this from kind of my nostalgia of both watching the original and uh, of reading the book back in the 80s as well um so yeah I, i'm gonna go with three and a half in this one all right and jim i love you all for not doing this i'm giving it 3.14159265 i've been sitting here going don't do the pie joke don't do the pie joke <laughs> What can I say? The rest of us have greater restraint. <laughs> now I'm like, how did I not get that? It's so obvious. Why did I not think of it? But if, oh, any of you, cooler, if any of you want to take that as your score, <laughs> if, if anyone wants to take that as your score so I can give it four, that'd be fine. But for comedy purposes, yeah, 3.1. Because that's fine. <laughs> okay. And that means that my score comes up a little higher than Jim's for once, uh, 3.5. It's because it's I, I can't give this a 5. I can't give it a 4. I give it a 3.5 for the same reason that Alice does and Dalton does and JG does, uh, simply because it is pretty good tiered sticks. Not a, not a great book. Not a great story. It's okay. It works. It captures the story as it was on screen. Sometimes it doesn't. In fact, some of my favorite moments are gone from this book, which is just really unfortunate. But there are other things that are new, like Susan being scooped, <laughs> which sounds very <laughs> odd. But yeah, 3.5. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, well, we're going on break for a little bit because it's been a lot. But next time we will discuss Ian Martyr's original novel, Harry Sullivan's War, which may or may not happen at this time in story order, but I really couldn't be bothered. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. JG, where can we find your podcast? My podcast is Talking Trek to You. Uh, we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and we really, really need the listeners, so uh, please, please listen. Uh, it's it's my good self and my co-host, Kev Kozar, uh, going through the original Star Trek episode by episode. Thank you. And Jim, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, um, your regular uh, co-guest, uh, Jason Miller, has the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, and he's recently, for reasons unknown to himself, made me a co-producer. Oh. Uh, and I've been doing lots of music things that are being um, played out on the beginning of the episodes and impressions and silly sketches and stuff, so please listen in. I've just released an animation for a song I've written for Enlightenment, which you can find on YouTube, for the Enlightenment Shanty. So please give it a look. <laughs> yes. And that podcast is part of our network, so very good. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, Email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Checkpoint. Direct checkpoint. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.